All right. There's nothing for it. No messing around. We're going straight into part two of season two of Concerning Hobbits, the Red Book of Westmarch. Enjoy. Of a Surprise Party, Episode 4. Episode 4 will see us finally return to Eleanor's story arc and the dawning of the Surprise Party. When last we were with Eleanor, she had finished reading the tales from the Red Book to Elfstan and Furiel as they drifted away to the land of Nod. They were still three days out from the Surprise Party. It would be awesome to see an opening montage featuring more time lapse of the party being set up at the Farthingstone. Again, a location we've never seen in the Middle-earth cinematic universe, but a place that would look monumental to be sure. This time-lapse sequence would also be a helpful tool to jump us right to the party day. The way it plays out in my mind, we'd see the time-lapse of the party setup happening at the Farthingstone, day turning to night, turning to day, turning to night, and fading into another vision from our very opening shot of season two, a misty field, leading to a shot of the bridge from Eleanor's dream and the river Brandywine, three riders sitting on the far side. This time though, we'll hear singing and realize that our point of view is actually that of a rider as well. The camera looking down and around to see we're sitting in a cart pulled by Eleanor's beloved pony, Jeb. We're seeing this dream from Eleanor's perspective. Slowly, the pony will trot us toward the bridge. Before we can get there, we'll cut away to Eleanor opening her eyes, looking right into the camera. Though startled awake, she'll move more sluggishly as she uncovers and sits up, the warm sunlight streaming into the master bedroom from the open windows of Bag End. As Eleanor groggily surveys the morning, we'll see Ted standing in the doorway, two mugs of steaming tea in his hands. The fairest of beings the world has ever known. Ted, it's too early to blush. We'll get a lovely scene here between Eleanor and Ted. It'll be a fantastic callback to moments we got to experience in season one, their deep friendship and love on full display. We didn't even hear you come in last night. You all right? I am. Very near exhausted, but no matter. It's all done. Never doubted you for a moment. So, what did you decide on? Dragon or wizard? Neither. Really? What, did you let Daisy take a crack at a showstopper? She was a great help, as ever she is. She's such a good friend. She helped, but no. No wizard or dragon. And I didn't put it on Daisy. Well then, what? What is it? You'll just have to wait and see along with every other hobbit, good sir. All right then, have it your way, love. How can I help this morning? Nothing needs doing. Everything's been set up and ready. Wonderful. A leisurely morning and a slow getting ready it is then. Mm, my favorite. Have you had any word on when Uncle Mary and Uncle Pippin are getting in? Got a message a couple days ago from the office of each. They'll be here early afternoon at the latest, and they send their formal congratulations on officially dominating the floral industry in all of Eriador. I can't wait to see them. Eleanor's energy will have shifted from the frenzy of creation mode to the contentment that accomplishment often brings. She's calm, relaxed, and balanced. An aura and glow emanates from her, bringing an all-new level to her golden reputation, pun intended. As we see Eleanor and her family getting ready for the party, Eleanor will clasp the Eleanor pendant around her neck. For the first time this season, we'll see this beautiful gift from Arwen worn by Eleanor. The pendant was synonymous with Eleanor in season one. We never saw her without it. But as time in parenthood tends to do with jewelry, it's now something she reserved for special occasions, especially driven to do so by the fear of losing it in her fields or at home with her children. No matter, we'll see it glow and reflect all the ethereal light on this day. 
Eleanor, Ted, Elfstan, and Furio will hitch Jeb to a modest wagon, climb in, and set off for the Farthingstone and the wildest party the Shire has ever seen. Upon arriving, we'll be audience to quite a sight. Tents, colorful pennants and flags, giant barrels of wine and ale, and flowers everywhere, in every shape and form, arches, walls, creatures. A small hobbit band will already be serenading hobbits filtering in from the four corners of the Shire. Pipe smoke will hang in the air like miniature white clouds. Several fire pits will be giving off warmth and light in anticipation of a party that may very well see no end, and I can't even know how to describe the food. Pies, potatoes, roasted vegetables, puddings, stews, corn on the cob with every imaginable sauce, every loaf of bread you can imagine, all the while, several of the hired cooks from the pubs work to grill meats and smoke fish, further saturating the air with intoxicating smells. Never forget the sniffing. At the very center, we'll see the farthing stone, standing tall and proud, taller than any tree in the surrounding woods. The stone stands wide at its base and narrows as it reaches for the heavens. Think bespoke obelisk. Same general shape, but rougher hewn, more weathered, and it shows. Just beside flies the flag of the Shire, an intertwined knot of four parts, and just below, a flag bearing a white flowering tree set against a blue field, the flag of Gondor. This will, of course, provide the source of ample banter amongst several hobbits, seeing it as a clue to the revelation of the surprise. There it is, sure enough, I reckon. That must be it, the surprise revealed. We'll be seeing the tall king, and the Shire no less. While the season of speculation continues to swell to its culmination that day, set amidst all the pomp, we'll see a large item, shrouded in several layers of what looks like linen, the great centerpiece of the finest florist in the Four Farthings. The Farthing Stone is an actual location in the Shire created by Tolkien, and referenced several times within his works. Referred to as the Three Farthing Stone, it lay next to the East Road and marked the location where the East, South, and West Farthings came together. It was also said to approximately mark the center of the Shire itself. It stood five miles southeast of Bywater and 14 miles west of Frogmorton. It's believed that Tolkien drew inspiration from a real-life Forshire stone, a nine-foot-high pillar 25 miles northwest of Oxford and two miles east of the Morton-on-Marsh, sounding very much like a reference to Frogmorton, especially when thinking about frogs living in marshes. In real life, this stone marked the centuries-old meeting place for the four county shires, Gloucestershire, Warwickshire, Oxfordshire, and Worcestershire. In our adaptation, the farthing stone will lose the three in its name, stand much taller than nine feet, and appear ancient, seemingly naturally hewn and unfathomably erect. If hobbits were indeed responsible, it would have been a proper engineering wonder. But, just as in Tolkien's works and the real-life inspiration, this will be a gathering place and meeting place used by hobbits for time out of mind. On this day, the day of the surprise party, the East Road will lead into the festivities from East and West, but disappear amongst the pavilions and tents beyond count and the main stage itself, more akin to a small village being raised than a mere party infrastructure. This episode will be so much fun. We'll get to see it all. Feasting, drinking, smoking, we'll get to see Eleanor and Daisy Boffin hanging out and reveling in their accomplishments. We'll see Eleanor gathering her gardening staff together and toasting to all their hard work, efforts, and a beautiful end result. The potential here to build in tertiary or peripheral characters and secondary plot moments is limitless, and it'll be a fun portion to explore and develop. Can you imagine just seeing so many hobbits all gathered together? Maybe we'll even see Mayor Hob Whitfoot begrudgingly attend and make an appearance. You know, he's never bought so much as a dandelion from the daughter of Sam, but the pomp of such a shire-wide event will be too much for him to resist. 
In a deliberate attempt to maintain continuity, we'll also see a reunion of Eleanor with her siblings and all their children as well. I would, of course, love to see a special scene between Eleanor and her brother Frodo, full of light and joy. The tension of Bag End's possession softened, and an issue Frodo no longer holds heavy in his heart. As the festivities continue, music will swell and dancing to complement it. As anticipated, just as afternoon tea is being served, which, let's be honest, just consists of continued eating and drinking, two ponies will arrive and approach the throng. The two hobbit riders, Master Marriadoc, the magnificent Brandybuck, and Thane Peregrine Took. Much older than when we last saw them, they dismount and walk through the hobbit crowds, greeting their fellow hobbits, each filling their pipes with old Toby and Longbottom Leaf. They are beloved. Revered and as legendary and taller after the drinking of the Ent Draft all those years ago as Bullroarer himself. The Hobbit children, many of whom are seeing the two for the very first time, will all gawk and ask, What are they wearing? Are those capes? Da, is that a sword? No regular fancy Hobbit garb for them on this day. On such a special occasion, for both know the true surprise of the party, as we'll soon realize, both will squeeze back into their most sacred raiment. As Pippin dons the armor of the Guard of the Citadel, once belonging to Faramir, the steward of Gondor, and Merry bears the colors of Rohan, the armor of an esquire of Rohan. Though hobbits of the Fourth Age hold Thane Pippin and Master Merry in high regard, shire celebrities and hobbit royalty, if you will, will see that they seem to us almost unchanged. Older, wiser, but just as jolly, vivacious and ornery as ever. And they've remained best friends through it all. As they make their way through the crowd, They'll seek out their gardener nibblings, nieces and nephews, Eleanor especially, and they'll all embrace and converse and laugh. Uncle Mary, Uncle Pip, let me get you a plate. You're too kind, love. I'll settle for a pint. Don't let Pip fool you, Nori. He's slim and he may have been dropping stones, but he's starving for it. Oh, cut it out. Don't give away my secret of youthfulness, you brandybuck. Mary and Pippin will meander through the hobbits gathering in the pavilions and the dancing fields, tending to their political duties, but genuinely enjoying it. They're headed to the Farthing Stone, where they plan to sit and sup, as it's close to the main stage, built right off to the side, and both will need to be ready that evening to address the Shire entire. Before sitting, we'll see both bend over, grab a handful of dirt from the ground, and toss it to the wind. It won't be addressed in the narrative, but this is something the two of them have always done when meeting at or visiting the Farthing Stone, as a nod, an homage, a salute to Sam Gamgee himself. For it was at the Farthing Stone that Sam tossed the last bit of the dust from Lady Galadriel and Lothlorien to the winds, to be scattered across the Shire in a symbolic gesture of hope that the Shire would be healed from the wounds of Saruman and the scouring of the Shire. It won't take long after they've sat, as the sun begins to set in the west, long, golden light stretching across the ethereal scene, that little hobbitlings will begin to cautiously approach the two legendary hobbits. Whether it's because their appearance is so fantastical, or it's in the hopes of receiving a treat or tail, or a mixture of both, is unclear, but within seconds, dozen will be sitting, kneeling, tiptoeing into their presence. Among them, Eleanor's son and daughter, though they know Uncle Mary and Uncle Pip well, there's something different, almost mythical, about them tonight. We ones, come on over, have a seat. I don't suppose you all would be wanting to hear a story, would you? Eleanor will set two heaping plates down for her uncles, fastred right behind her with four frothy pints, two in each hand. I know one that'll put fresh hair on your toes, to be sure. Ah, do ya? So's do I. I reckon mine to be a tail taller than yours, at no mistake. This, of course, is a fun reference to Mary and Pippin's age-old bickering over who is a taller hobbit. I should think not. 
And anyway, if it is, that would only be because you've no doubt heavily embellished it. But not mine. It's true blue. Go on then, Thane Peregrine. Tell away. All right then. Taking a sip of his pint, he'll wipe his lips and begin. As ever, I will remain completely transparent when describing what we've heavily developed and what aspects have not. The two tall tales that Pippin and Mary tell are more conceptual in their development. As previously mentioned, when adapting and developing, some parts of a story just jump out to one and take one for a ride. For me, that was Bullroarer's story from this season. And as I said previously, it was completely unexpected. I even found myself feeling like I was developing it too deeply. Perhaps nervous I'd awaken a Balrog, but it was rolling and I didn't want to just halt it for stopping's sake. Don't stem it, as I've been told. That being said, the tales that Pippin and Mary will tell are concepts I've thought long and hard about. They aren't placeholders in any sense of the word. They just remain more mysterious to me. By the time you're listening to this, it's very likely that they've grown and I've developed them further. But in an effort to get season two done and dusted so you can enjoy it, more mysterious tales they'll remain. For both tall tales, I desired to have them mirror Bilbo's tales in some way, as both Merry and Pippin would have had countless memories of hearing Bilbo tell stories. If circumstances had been a bit different, they could very well have been there the night our Sam lad enjoyed in episodes 2 and 3. So to see these stories resemble Bilbo's would be fitting. Where Bilbo's tales intertwined and grew with complexity by way of confusion and embellishment, Pippin and Mary's will cloak themselves in the mythical by way of just not being true. And ironically, the true versions of each event will be revealed and seem taller than the tales they tell. So, that being revealed, both Pippin and Mary will tell tales respectively, which could follow the intercut pattern told over two episodes that we saw with Bilbo's. At the conclusion of each, or both, depending on how they're told, we'll see a much shorter almost montage of the true events of each tale, the truth behind the matter, to which both Pippin and Mary, along with all other Hobbit folk, are ignorant. Tales that most hobbits would shrug off as being far too fanciful to possibly be fact. I guess, in an essence, these stories will do the opposite of Bilbo's embellishing, with Pippin and Mary thinking they're telling outrageous tales only to, in fact, unintentionally and unknowingly be giving unembellished versions of the truth. Good. Now that that's all out of the way, we can move on to episodes 5 and 6 of Tall Tales from the Tallest of Hobbits. Pippin's tale will be inspired by the location of the surprise party. Little Shirelings, why, did you know that this very stone, in all its height and might, would not stand here before us, were it not for the Tooks? Pippin will then craft a magical tale about how it was the Tooks that sought to mark the middle of the Shire, Tuckborough being so close to it anyway, and wanting to do something for and within the Shire that would stand forever. Typical Took stuff. Tall, proud, somewhat braggadocious, altogether different. Definitely not the short poppy mentality. To be honest, I'm not even entirely sure who our main characters will be. But these will be, according to Pippin, some of the very first of the Took clan, far predating the Great Schmales. They'll definitely have competing ideas of what should mark the center of the Shire, wanting all halflings to know it was the Tooks as marked the middle. A tree? Yeah. A great symbol of the green country. An oak or maple would grow to great heights and would provide a lovely gathering place for centuries. But trees grow old, die, or are felled if their origins and importance are forgotten. Plus, there's natural causes that could bring about its end. By gum, consider the damage lightning could do. Then the very gesture and its makers would all be in vain. A well, then? Ah, yes. 
a beautiful landmark that would provide, the Shire symbolized by a cool, refreshing drink of water. All who pass by would find refreshment and be renewed by the lifeblood of the Shire. But wells run dry. Have you ever seen anyone marvel, never mind you gather, at a dry well? Doesn't happen. And anyway, what if there's no source, no spring on the location in mind? No, a well's no good. That's it. Not a tree, nor a well. A stone. And not just a boulder, rolled to a spot for moss, wind, and rains to forget, but a standing stone, tall as could be found or made, beautifully carved if possible, a monument of stone, impossible to miss or forget, and almost impervious to the slow decay of time. That's it, they'll decide. The tallest stone the Shire's seen, brought and raised by Tooks. This idea and the consequential act will, in fact, result in the origin of the saying, fool of a Took, as all other families in the four farthings will whisper this moniker when discussing the ambitions of the Tooks. That's right, fool of a Took isn't just a phrase Gandalf coined, he'd heard it spoken before, and was merely repeating it when we hear it from him in our beloved tales. One can imagine how hilarious and outrageous this story will be when unfolded and explored, and perhaps that's maybe why it remains so elusive still. The possibilities are endless. How will Pippin explain its excavation? Although, that could be easily done. Hobbits are natural excavators. Perhaps it's in the stone's transport that most of the comedy lies. How in the world would they move such a stone? And where would it originate? Knowing the nature of Tooks, it would have to be a rare stone, and perhaps even come from far away, if for no other reason than to show that it came from far away. In writing this now, an idea is jumping out to me which is one of the things I've loved about this process. Heavily inspired by New Zealand, of course, it would be really cool to see the farthing stone crafted out of greenstone, New Zealand jade or panamu. We've actually seen a reference of sorts in the cinematic universe with Erebor in The Hobbit. Ever notice how at least the carved front entrance and main gate has a very rich dark green appearance with some veins of darker green and even amber and speckles as well running throughout? It absolutely looks to be an homage to panamu. And a stone at the center of the Shire, the greenest, lushest area of Middle-earth, would have to be green. It could only be a green stone. Panamu is found in abundance in the mountains of New Zealand, the peaks of which are all sacred to Maori. Let's say the Tooks find it in the same remote location, perhaps in the Blue Mountains. You could even imagine some of the taller peaks of the Tower Hills, all to the west. Regardless of where it comes from, the Tooks will find it, mine or burrow it, burrow it if they find it on a snowy peak in the Blue Mountains, and then drag it all the way to the center of the Shire. Then there's the raising. I imagine Pippin will tell us in great detail of this event, and I also imagine it would happen much like an Amish barn raising. There will be food and drink and a party at the ready, and every able-bodied toque in the Shire will gather to use all their might and pull the rope that will pulley up the green farthing stone into place. The green farthing stone will of course be what it was called at first, then changed through miscommunication and because of phonetic similarity to the three farthing stone and eventually evolving into just the farthing stone. With their monumental contribution in place, the Tooks will party hard into the night under the shadow of the green three farthing stone. As mentioned before, and rather fittingly, this is not only an embellishment on Pippin's part, but ours as well. There was no detailed grand origin story for the farthing stone from Tolkien, but this one feels... Well, inspired by the spirit of Tolkien, to us anyway, and hopefully to you as well. So the Tooks found, burrowed, drug, and raised the Farthing Stone. Or at least that's how the story goes. The truth 
is that the Tuks merely found the Farthing Stone, not in the Blue Mountains, not as a result of some grand plan to leave their mark on the Shire. No, they found it as is. And it was this stone that marked the center of the Shire, not the other way around. In fact, and in reality, the hobbits have no idea how this stone came to stand in its position, leastwise where it came from, or who put it there. The real events, which again we'll see as a montage, are much, much older. Ancient, in fact. It will unfold in a very mysterious manner, and I would imagine without any dialogue actually, but we'll see a world very changed. Perhaps we could even see a map of Middle-earth that shows a look back in time and a recession of the Great Sea to the west as we get a glimpse of Middle-earth before the Great Floods in the First Age. Jeez, Lane, this is ridiculous. Right, I know. But let's dream a little and have some fun. Admittedly, this is more an homage to a modern human position. I know I said I wasn't going to do any of that, marveling at wonders of the ancient world and surmising their origins. Most of them will never really fully understand or know how or when they were built, but it's fun to imagine. We'll do the same here. Long ago, dwarves and elves were friends. Well, maybe not friends, but not wholly unfriendly. The origin of the Farthing Stone will see two characters, an elf and a dwarf, both unnaturally obsessed with the night sky. For an elf, this is totally natural, but for a dwarf, less so. This dwarf desires the jewels of the night sky far more than those in the depths of the earth. We'll see both of them looking to the night sky, charting the heavens, and wandering afar. At some point, we'll see them encounter one another. And while at first on guard, when realizing the intentions of each are the same, a bond will be formed. My obvious inspiration for this backstory is Legolas and Gimli, or rather the adventures and travels Legolas and Gimli took in the Fourth Age, after the quest of the Fellowship had been fulfilled. We never got to see that in the films, but we can get a glimpse of it here. These two companions are in search of something, a star or perhaps a constellation. We won't know why or what drives them. Again, mysteries are cool, and not everything has to have a clear meaning. Isn't that the nature of ancient things? at least from the perspective of modernity. Their searching will bring them east, far east, to what is the Shire. But of course, this is long before any hobbits. The landmark they'll find aligned with the star they seek is a hill, topped with a stony crown. The elf will of course want to mark the spot, and the dwarf will of course want to excavate if possible. And through further montage, we'll see the flattening of the hill, I know this isn't very elven, but he'll yield to the dwarf in this manner, and the carving of the stone at its core, leaving a massive greenstone monolith. And there it is. The origin of the Farthing Stone, much more outrageous than even the incredible story passed down for generation amongst the Tooks. Is it unbelievable? Yeah, probably. I know the distance covered by the elf and the dwarf would make a certain section of Tolkien fans cringe, not to mention the motivation of their journey seeming a little lacking, but I'll just say this true version behind Pippin's tall tale, A, won't demand ample screen time, and B, is kind of a tribute to the connection of elves and dwarves to the Shire. Yeah, it might seem like a really odd quest for an elf and a dwarf to undertake, but I mean, there's all kinds of odd things that happen in Tolkien's Legendarium, and elves are immortal. Their minds and desires work a little differently. That's why they scare me. <laughs> Whereas Pippin's tale has almost no Tolkien signposts connected to it, other than it being a fact that Tolkien did describe there being a farthing stone, Mary's tall tale is actually based on events that happened, 
in Buckland along its eastern border, which it shares with the Old Forest. That's right. We're going to hear tell of the battle between the Hobbits and the Hjorns. Think Ents, but less humanoid, at the High Hay. Before jumping into the tall tale of Master Mariadoc, here's a little backstory and the writings of Tolkien that will ground this tale. The High Hay, or the Hedge, was a barrier planted by the Hobbits of Buckland to protect their land from the Old Forest. If you haven't read about the Old Forest, you really must. I'd give its backstory here, but I'm afraid I wouldn't do it justice. Just know that it's a magical wood, and true to its name, very old. In fact, you could call it an old growth forest, to use the parlance of our world, a remaining island of woods that's never been disturbed by mankind. In fact, the old forest covered most of Eriador before the Second Age, and Numenorean fleet building, amongst other things, led to its deforestation. So the trees that remained were dark and a bit malicious, cornered beasts desperate to fight to survive. If you've read The Fellowship of the Ring, you'll know the old forest well. And it's in the pages of that book that we get the mention of Mary's tall tale, by Mary, fittingly enough. On the first stage of their voyage to Rivendell, Mary tells that long ago the trees of the old forest attacked the hedge by planting themselves right by it and leaning over it. In response, the Bucklanders cut down hundreds of trees to make a great bonfire in what would be named Bonfire Glade and burned a long strip next to the hay on its east side. The exact occurrence of this war is unknown, sometime between 2340 and 3018 in the Third Age, quite a gap of time, leading all the way to the year 3018 of the events told in The Fellowship of the Ring. Wild, right? Again, one of those small illusions that begs exploration and elaboration. Well, that's what we'll get in this episode. I think this story would be best told almost in the style of a horror film. We could follow a few Bucklanders with one main character, more on him or her a little bit later, who slowly start to notice, one at a time, trees appearing next to the hedge. Rumors will mill and tongues will wag. What's happening at the high hay? Is the hedge moving or are the trees? And what's it all mean? All older hobbits and more sensible Bucklanders will dismiss this as nonsense. Them trees have always been there. It's the autumnal foliage what's playing tricks on your mind. And some will change their mind. It is the height of autumn after all, and with how unseasonably warm and dry it's been, perhaps that's just it. Brilliant yellows and oranges and reds are just drawing the attention of the hobbits to trees that have been there for some time now. If anything, it just goes to show we need some arborists to cut back the old growth a bit. High time we tidy up the east wall of the hedge. That's what our hobbit realists will all claim. But our lead Bucklander, Amaranth or Mary Brandybuck, will feel that something's amiss. And more so that something's about to happen. And nothing good. Amaranth Brandybuck is a character of Tolkien's creation. She's the aunt of Frodo and the great aunt of Mary Brandybuck, so she makes perfect sense in a connection to the characters of this season. She was born in 1304 and was the second child of Gorbodoc Broadbelt Brandybuck and Mirabella Took. So she too would have a Tookish side. During the events of our tale, we could safely say that Mary is in her tweens, which would put the year anywhere in the mid to late 1320s. Primula, Frodo's mother, would have only been a small child at the time and would perhaps be a tag-along to Mary, who would have been charged with looking after her. At any rate, Mary is a sensitive soul, and one even more in tune with the natural world than most hobbits, which is saying a lot. If she feels something is amiss, or about to be, then it most certainly is. 
She doesn't believe that the trees they've all been noticing just to the east of the high hay have always been there. In fact, she believes she's seen at least one come alive and move. And then there's the strange sounds she and others have heard. Great moanings, almost akin to the sounds of whale song or the great groaning trees make when rubbing against one another in the high winds of spring and autumn. At first, they could only be heard at night, but then slowly one could hear them in the broad day. Ominous and dark sounds they were, like the growling of a wolf about to attack. In fact, Mary recalled tales of the white wolves that broke into the Shire during the fell winter. She imagined they hadn't sounded too different to this. As you can imagine, the tension will slowly build, and before long, the entire high hay, which runs a full length of 20 miles, will be buttressed on the east by old, gnarled trees, reaching up and over the hedge and choking it out, causing it to lose its bright yellow leaves too early, turning it black in some places. Eventually, driven by pure curiosity, some hobbits will approach the high hay, and when they do, the awful premonitions of Mary will come to fruition. Several hobbits will be dumbfounded when they are grabbed from their hesitant groups, coiled back, and hurled through the air hundreds of yards. Thankfully, out of sheer luck, none of the attacked hobbits will perish, but they are all badly injured, and tempers amongst the hobbits of Buckland flare. Needless to say, the whole of Buckland is on edge and ready to strike in retaliation. Mary will sneak into a meeting of elders being held that very night. Amongst them, her father, Broadbelt, will speak reason into the fury of the frightened hobbits. We mustn't do anything rash now. Keep clear of the hedge, that's to be sure. Tell all the hobblings to go nowhere near the east fields. As for the mad trees, I have a plan. What we'll see next is Broadbelt's plan in action. It will begin innocently enough, hobbits doing what hobbits do best, burrowing. In fact, these hobbits will begin a modest tunnel or trench just to the east of Crick Hollow and running parallel to the high hay going ever deeper. It's when the tunnel disappears fully underground that the truth of the plan is hatched. Da, Mary will ask, what's the tunnel for? Oh, Mary, don't worry about it. You just take care of Primula and leave these matters to the elders, my dear, eh? But Da, please don't hurt the trees. Mary? They don't really mean harm. I won't believe it anyway, no matter what anyone says. They've been hurt, I think. Well, I think they're scared. What are you talking of, child? I think it's us they're scared of. But we've done nothing to them. Well, not us, but ones like us. Uprights. Men, hobbits, dwarves. Non-tree folk, I mean. Mary, your heart's beautiful, dear. But we have to defend the Shire. Don't make me promise something I can't. Mary, looking on with Primula by her side, pulling her away to play, will know full well the objective of the mission. Unfortunately, her feelings won't betray her. That night, firelight will flicker in the newly dug trench, glowing like some giant golden worm. And amidst the moaning and groaning of the trees, digging will be heard, for the first time, echoing from east of the high hay, followed soon after by cheers and shouting. Nothing else will happen that night, but the next day a line of hobbits, half with axes, half with torches, will march towards the trench tunnel. All right, lads, best to try in the light of day. Let's go. What happens next is madness. We'll witness something we've never seen before. Hobbits attacking nature with the fury of vengeance. 
The trees that had slowly at first, then maliciously crowded the high hay or the hedge, are in fact trees, but a special sort known as hjorns, essentially non-sentient, less humanoid ents. They are trees that can whisper and talk to each other, even move. Old Man Willow was the best example we get in Tolkien's The Fellowship of the Ring. He swallowed Merry and Pippin whole and would have kept them there if not for the intervention of a character we might just yet see in this tale. It's these hjorns that have crept ever closer to the hedge in the high hay, trying to choke it out and then growing bold enough to grab a few hobbits and send them sailing. They'd had enough. The old forest had been hemmed in too long, and this high hay built by the halflings would need to go. No more cornering nature in their minds. But the hobbits wouldn't stand this assault or emboldening any longer. With startling coordination, hobbits with axes would move in to strike at the hjorns, chopping and slashing with the intent of felling each one. In defense, these horns would wheel about, reaching for and attempting to bat away these little folk. But when they did, three hobbits at least were there ready to fend them off with fire. Whether it be by throwing torches or brandishing them about, or both, throwing to slow a strike from the trees, then setting fire as their branches approached, slowly but surely the trees were culled and brought down. If the hobbits had thought that the trees crying out before was a marvel, it was nothing to what could be heard now. Ringing throughout the air of the east farthing were the shrieks of the Hjorns, like banshees in the night, the sound of fear and terror and death. This made more than a few hobbits. In fact, one would be right in saying almost all the hobbits of the east farthing felt sick with grief. This was not what they had wanted, but the thought of living in fear of what these great trees could do when emboldened outweighed their desire for peace. The hobbits felling the Hjorns felt the fury of battle build in their hearts, though many grew ill after and would regret the part they played in that day, but saw it as, what must be done, it was us or them. It was tears that now rolled down Mary's cheeks. How could hobbits do such a thing? So disgraceful and unnatural it felt, and her own father, organizing and endorsing the idea. She sat in the east fields that evening and wept. Primula in her lap, also crying, she held her tight. After a while, all the wailing had stopped, and no more cries pierced the air. In place of the sound of terror, there was silence. Barely even a hobbit whispered as many begrudgingly moved on with their evening, preparing the meals for the night or returning to chores and business. Yet a great many sat and watched. Many joined Mary in sadness and themselves shed tears for the inevitable. Some watched in fascination, and others with a feeling of vindication. Silence filled the atmosphere and was joined by the gentle roar of fire. For the hobbits who had felled the Hjorns drugged them all parallel to the hedge that stretched as far as the hobbit eye could see right abut to the old forest and set it ablaze. They had hoped it wouldn't catch the whole wood on fire, but most of them didn't really care if it did. It'll serve them all right. It'll give us a chance to plant more manageable tame trees in their place. As night fell, the fires grew and many hobbits grew leery that the blaze would overtake not only the old forest, but the high hay as well, and maybe even catch parts of the east farthing. A fear now hung in the air, and a swirling wind threatened them all. None could sleep that night, for though a moonless night should have filled the whole shire with darkness, the burning trees set it all aglow. Then, as if by magic, a single being appeared, silhouetted by the fires, and not in the east farthing either, this person was standing east of the high hay. And what's more, it was no hobbit. Mary couldn't believe what she was witnessing, as Primula slept on her lap. What's more, none could believe what they all heard next. For the roaring of the fires was now joined by a beautiful singing, deeper and truer than any had ever heard in the Shire before. 
lyrical yet purely musical, almost impossible to decipher whether words were being sung or just notes being thrown into the night. Do you see that? Many began to whisper to one another. Can you hear that? That's no tongue of any hobbit, man, or dwarf. It's an elf, Mary said to herself, not knowing exactly why or what it was, other than the sheer magic of the situation that caused her to think it, but she did. What's more, she believed it. It's an elf, she shouted. Rubbish, that, or folly, could be distantly heard in reply. But sure enough, more and more, no, no, the girl's right. That's an elf. It's an elf, many now shouted. And amid the singing, which wasn't altogether sad nor happy, it was oddly natural sounding, like the winds in the canopy or the sound of running waters, the hobbits could see the tall, slender figure begin to dance. It was utterly beautiful to witness. And then an even funnier thing happened. It began to rain, gently at first, then ever harder, until it was a proper washout, as the saying in the Shire goes. Yet the elf didn't waver. Even as almost every hobbit sought shelter, the elf remained and stood its ground, singing and dancing. Mary, too, stood in the rain. Though Primula left her and ran to their father and mother seeking shelter, she remained, entranced by what she saw and heard, filled with hope. And it would not go unrewarded, for the dangers of the fire and the burning were quenched within moments. The blazes put out, and both the Shire and the Old Forest saved, not by a hobbit, or a man, or a dwarf, or even a hjorn, but by an elf who stood. We'll get a last shot of Mary, watching as the fires are fully put out, her tears hidden by the deluge as she finds it impossible to break her gaze from the magic being who saved them all. And that's why they call that spot Standelf. Believe it or not, that's not my place to decide for you, but sure as there's a shire, it was an elf who saved us Bucklanders and our borders. It's Master Marriott Brandybuck who will finish this tall tale and bring us back to the surprise party momentarily, surrounded by hobbiting after hobbiting and many full-grown hobbits, mouths agape, having been completely enthralled by both tales from the legendary Thane Pippin and Master Mary. Just as we saw the true story behind Pippin's tale, we'll get the same for Mary's, and I gotta admit, this one has me absolutely stoked to share. For while Mary's tale gave credit to the saving of Buckland and its borders to an elf, and consequentially explaining the origins of the East Farthing village named Standelf, the real events are even more wild and taller, so to say. When we cut away, we'll see a homely house in the middle of the forest. A golden light will stream out of its windows and open door as evening falls, and we'll see a jolly figure, a feathered hat, blue coat, and big yellow boots, hopping along the tall grasses surrounding, returning from a stream with white flowers in hand. A whole bouquet, in fact, and an elated expression on his face. This, of course, is Tom Bombadil, guardian of the old forest, eldest and fatherless. He's headed home to join the one whom he loves most, but hears, or rather feels, a sound that brings an abrupt halt to his joyous romp. He senses pain, and he's not alone. Walking to his side, I say walking, but imagine the most beautiful gait you can. Think Galadriel's gliding from the mirror scenes in The Fellowship of the Ring, but tenfold is none other than the river daughter, Goldberry, Tom's love and life spring. Though her beauty is indescribable, a look of worry and sadness washes over her face, and both join hands and make to the west. Now, I'm not totally sure how to describe their flight here. 
Would they walk because they're ethereal, or would they make full haste because the circumstances demand? I don't exactly know for now, but regardless, when we see them next, it's a wildfire horror we see reflected in their eyes and on their faces. But no worries. These two know exactly what to do. It's Goldberry who moves to the west of the blaze, placing herself between the high hay and the burning horns. Tom stands tall on the other side of the fires between the carnage and the borders of the old forest. Goldberry's stance will fully explain why it is that hobbits thought that they saw an elf that night, and indeed, why that's the tale they passed on and down. Because, from a distance, and if you'd never seen an elf before, Goldberry could easily be confused as one. The power of song is something both Tom and Goldberry possess, and they'll join forces here, lifting their voices to the heavens, and it's Goldberry who will summon the rains, washing day indeed. We'll get more incredible shots of this epic moment, Shots of Tom, ideally played by Jack Black, of course, and shots of Goldberry, saving not only Buckland and the hobbits from their own backfired, excuse the pun, defenses, but also the old forest, their home and domain. And thus, both tall tales conclude. These shots would be a fitting crescendo and climax to what's been a season full of tales of epic and mythological proportion. Just one more episode to go. The wrapping up of the partying and the revelation of the surprise itself. Episode 7 of The West March and its Gifting. I don't know this episode half as well as I'd like, and I like writing half of it half as well as it deserves. I know that modified quote really doesn't work that well, but episode 7 is probably the least developed of any episode this season, and with some reason as well. This episode really only needs to accomplish three things unveil Eleanor's floral creation centerpiece, reveal the true surprise of the party, and to discern the meaning of Eleanor's cryptic dream that we've now seen twice. That's it. That's all that really needs resolved, and there's definitely a lot of freedom and comfort in knowing that. Honestly, I prefer when most of the climax in a show happens in middle episodes, rather than in the final episode of a season. It's always kind of felt like a setup to me. When it works, it's a hole-in-one. But more often times than not, it doesn't, and the disappointment that ensues can leave such a proverbial bad taste in one's mouth. Final episodes and shows are never my favorite ones, and in some cases they've kept me from going back and rewatching shows I absolutely loved overall. I still haven't been able to rewatch BBC's Sherlock after that finale. So, for our season 2 finale, we'll keep it simple and comfortable. It's important to remember too that we've been on some crazy adventures, seeing the Shire invaded 3 times a season. That's a lot of tension to endure. This episode will open with us enjoying the height of the surprise party. Everyone will be dancing or drinking and eating. The live music will be in absolute full swing, and maybe we'll even see Thane Pippin jump in and play a little of his Hobbit banjo, reprising his role from Bilbo's long-expected party. We'll have lovely scenes with Eleanor and her gardeners, as well as all of the gardener children, Eleanor and her siblings all finding one another again and enjoying the majestic festivities as night falls and a clear sky is filled with glittering stars. It would be cool to see Eleanor dancing with Fastred, as well as Marion Pippin cutting in while lively music echoes in the valley. Eventually, we'll hear, Speech! Speech! But instead of hearing the crowd calling, as they did in the Fellowship of the Ring at Bilbo's 111th birthday party, it will be Marion Pippin who have made their way to the main stage, just next to the Farthing Stone, its smooth green surface glowing from the firelight of the party emanating a warmth and an aura of comfort. Our dear hobbits of the Shire, from the north to the south farthing, and from the west to the east farthing, 
Pippin and Merry will begin their speech, and the hushing from the call of speech will be shattered by cheering at the acknowledgement of the four farthings. We know it's with great anticipation that this day has finally arrived, and what a day it's been indeed. But it's with the promise of a surprise that you've all been called here this day. Enough with it! Where's the tall king? Don't think we haven't noticed his flag amidst the excitement. Ah, ha, ha. the tall king. Pippin and Merry will laugh, as this moniker still feels new and amusing to them, though they've heard it for years now. The tall king, King Elisar, our dear friend, the king of Gondor, will not be making an appearance this evening. Though we did try, he said he'd only come if I promised Thane Took was out of the Shire on business, something about an old argument over breakfast. Oh, poppycock! Don't let the master here fool you. For a fool I am, but not one so great that I'd scare off a king. Leastwise, not this king. No, King Elisar will not be present this evening out of the desire to honor an old promise made to us all, though he sends his greetings and salutations. And he wanted us to tell you all how much he truly wishes he could be here. And while he cannot be with us this evening, it is to him our surprise is owed. But before we reveal the surprise, it's high time for an unveiling. Eleanor, firstborn of Samwise the Brave and Rosie the Strong, please come forward. Eleanor's approach toward her giant, shrouded creation will be met with strong applause from the great gathering of the Four Farthings. And we'll definitely need to see a close-up scowl from Hob Whitfoot at some point during this approach. Seeing her praised and lauded is almost too much for him to stand. Maybe he'll stuff a pastry into his mouth in an attempt to bury his hatred. For it is he alone that withholds admiration for Eleanor. In the eyes of all others, she is remarkable, beautiful, hardworking, and endlessly humble. How could she be all these things and still find humility? Yet, she does, and is counted as an even greater marvel for it. On her way, she gathers all her gardening staff to her, for this isn't a moment just for her, but for them all. She's even an awesome boss. Of course. We'll see Daisy Boffin join her, and they'll hold one another's hand as they all approach. Without giving a speech or saying a word, the gardeners will each grab a rope, and in what most certainly was a practiced and choreographed moment, all will pull the various shrouds falling in a spiral around the main centerpiece, unveiling a tall and broad, white-flowering tree made entirely of flowers. It will be so stunning and lifelike that most hobbits won't even realize that it's constructed entirely of flowers. Many who applauded were merely doing so because they believed that the prairie around the Farthingstone had received a new and quite exotically beautiful tree. It wasn't until later and further inspection that they realized this marvel had been handcrafted by the finest florist the four farthings had ever known. Not a wizard, nor a dragon, we'll hear Daisy whisper to Eleanor amid the eruption of cheering and applause. Glowing and flickering around Eleanor's neck, we'll see the pendant gifted to her from Queen Arwen and Minas Tirith all those years ago, in the very shadow of the white tree, the fourth white tree of Gondor, descendant of Nimloth and Celeborn and Galathilion before it. Though none there, save Merry and Pippin, would know its true significance, this masterpiece, which would go on to be referred to as the great creation of Lady Eleanor, would be an almost replica of that very fourth white tree of Gondor. It would be a surprise to all, Merry and Pippin included, and so convincing and lifelike that tears would stream down the cheeks of both, for memories of dark journeys and joyous celebrations would be rekindled deeply within their souls. Upon seeing it, they would embrace one another and join the applause and amazement. After what seems like minutes of applause and cheers, Merry and Pippin will begin their speech again. Just as this great tree blooms with flowers grown right here in the Shire, 
so too our shire will bloom and grow this very night, for we have been given a mighty gift by an even mightier king. And it comes to it at last, the reason for the surprise, the revelation of it all. Our dear hobbits, we are pleased to announce to you that as of tomorrow morning officially, an entire region will be gifted to all of us. At midnight stroke, our shire will grow to the west, and the land of the West March, from the far downs to the Tower Hills, will have a home in the shire. At this, the hobbits will again erupt in cheering and applause. It's fair to point out that most will have no idea as to why this is such a big deal. More land means more to manage, more to worry about, more with which to trouble themselves. But if it comes from a king so great, it must be a good thing indeed. But they'll applaud and cheer all the same, not wanting to appear ignorant to the apparent significance and importance of this land. There must be buried treasure there, some would reckon, though not dare to mention or speak out loud. But many would also cheer and rejoice at the mere spectacle and growing of the Shire. How could this be a bad thing, they'd surmise to themselves. There's not much more to be said, except more music, more drink, and more dancing. Away we go! And with those words from the Thane, the official formalities of the surprise party came to an end. The curt hobbits decided then to leave. What else more was there to do? They mostly hailed from Sackville and started their journey home south, but almost all others reveled in the night and continued on. It's after this that Merry and Pippin will come to Eleanor. I imagine this final sequence being done with no dialogue at all, with even the sounds of the party fading out to be replaced by a score and maybe even the voice of Liv Tyler, let's say, singing some beautifully crafted song. We'll see Pippin and Merry talking with Eleanor, Eleanor going to Ted and Elfstan and Furiel, who will be beckoned to come with them. Pippin and Mary on ponyback, and Eleanor, Ted, Elfston, and Furiel in the family cart pulled by Jeb will quietly slip away from the festivities. A small travel montage will follow, seeing the three ponies bear the six hobbits north, eventually bringing us to it. Here, we'll see the realization of Eleanor's dream. For over a mist-blanketed field, she'll see a distant stone bridge over the Northbourne River, and on the far side, three mounted riders. As we come closer, we realize that these writers, who at season's beginning seemed so mysterious, are people very important to Eleanor, and none other than the tall king, his elven bride, and their princely son, Aragorn, Arwen, and Eldarion, standing at Shire's Edge to see and meet the two hobbit lords and the great lady Eleanor and her kin. I had honestly really toyed with the idea of building a scene with them all, but I think I think it's more powerful to just see the meeting, maybe even just before, just long enough for us to realize who the three writers are and see Eleanor's reaction to this realization, the camera falling back as they continue on and approach the great reunion. All will fade to black, and just like that, season two is complete. Wow. Season one and two in the bag. I have to admit, I'm not ready to be done working on adapting these stories yet. I don't want it to be over. It's been an experience filled with more joy, excitement, and elation than I could have ever imagined. So, maybe I'll take my time with season three a little bit. But who knows? I hope you've enjoyed this season and continue to share the vision of what could be a realization of some of the greatest tales Tolkien ever told. I'll see you next time for the show's conclusion with season three. Remember to keep your feet, or like me, don't, and embrace being swept off to no telling where. And remember... Eleanor lives. <laughs>